Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, it's Candace and Kayla, and we are directionally challenged. Yep. By the time, oh my God, did I just mess it up? We thought we would have it all figured out by the time Wait. we were in our 30s. <laughs> and I. <laughs> How many times have we wow. said this? How did you forget the wow. opening? <laughs> Man. Yeah, I just did. I don't know. But I thought I'd have it figured out by the time we were four years into making this podcast. Surprise. No, we don't. We clearly. don't. Clearly, we don't. <laughs> That's okay. It is okay. Ugh. And you know what I love so much about this is the la- there's no pressure. There's no pressure to act like we have to have it all figured out. And, you know, from someone who, as your friend, Candace, you are highly successful. <laughs> oh, and to have someone like you. No, it's true. To have someone like you just openly admit that like, oh, whoops, forgot the opening <laughs> to the podcast we do every week. It's very refreshing. It's extremely well, refreshing. Well, thank you. That's what I'm here for. Just uh, <laughs> be refreshing. Oh, man. No. And that will honestly... I think that that was one of my favorite things when you and I were, you know, 
creating what would become this podcast, the idea of being directionally challenged, we were like, this is great. If we're ever like, if we make a mistake and if we don't know what to say, we're just totally on brand. And this is when everyone was saying on brand, <laughs> like it was very big to be on brand or off brand. Um, and so, yeah, you know, four years, almost five years in, I'm just staying on brand, you know? Right. And it's funny because we were both traditional actors before we started this podcast and we love acting and it's a huge part of our creativity and our sense of self. But we did a pivot in life and figured, hey, let's start this really exciting new endeavor together and see where it goes. And you're right. Four years in, here we are. And it's been really fun and exciting to explore a different part of our creative minds together and interview all these lovely people and start to grow as human beings and I don't know. Do you think I've grown? Have I grown a little bit, Candace, in the four years? You can put you can be you honest. Definitely have. We we both have. Four years ago, we were on our first episode just trying to figure out how do we talk into a microphone without censoring every single thought that came into our brains as to, oh my gosh, does this sound interesting? Does this sound funny? Do I sound dumb? Does this sound cool? Like just kind of in um, you know, that hamster wheel. And so I think that we've both grown and be able to talk and um, and be more free in this creative space. I don't know about you, but I think uh, the transition from creating this podcast to in-person, from in-person to uh, this digital space due to the pandemic has really, you know, been a bigger transition for me than I anticipated. To what you were saying, you know, we're both creative people. We are actors. We are used to being around a lot of other people, even auditioning, you know, in a room, in a waiting room with a bunch of other actors constantly being surrounded by other creatives. And, you know, realizing that a year and a half going on two years in that this kind of like creative isolation, I think some people flourished and then others, I've found it to be more difficult to be creative and sometimes needing to like hype myself up even for a podcast episode being like, okay, what do I have to offer? What do I have to bring to this hour of conversation? Because I just feel like I'm in this like really uncomfortable bubble. I mean, how how has creativity been for you during right. this time? Yeah, I've felt starved creatively. Absolutely. And unable to figure out what it is I need. I know I need to do something, but I don't know what it is. And I, I don't know if others can relate to me in that sense. But I think I think a lot of people can knowing that there's a, a void that needs to be filled, but not really sure what it is. And that's why I'm really excited. We're talking to Sarah Stein Greenberg today. I think she has a lot to offer with this and a lot of guidance for those of us that truly feel stumped creatively right now. I think a huge element for me too during this pandemic has been being a first time mom because Poppy was six months when the pandemic hit. And so not only have I felt creatively isolated, but I felt isolated in general because um, I was just a mom for so long and there's nothing wrong with that. But for me, it was a huge transition. I went from being working and being a mom and doing all of these things. And then suddenly everything just shut down and I was felt creatively just deprived and depleted and then also deprived and depleted from any sense of taking care of myself because I was solely responsible for this new human life. And so it was a huge transition for me that, you know, I'm still going through right now, but I think it's something that has, um, 
evolved. And now as she grows and we all learn to cope with the way that life is right now, it's getting better and better each day. And I'm learning a lot about myself and learning a lot about myself as a mom, myself as a creative. And um, yeah, I guess I don't quite know exactly where it's going to go. It's funny. One of the... um... We watched a lot of music documentaries during the pandemic. That was one of Joe's like favorite things. You did. To do. You recommended a lot. We got of a lot music of music documentaries. Docs to me. Um, <laughs> there was one great one uh, that our neighbor actually gave us a DVD because you can't even stream it anywhere. But it's about Wings. Is that a band? Is Wings yes. a band? Paul McCartney's oh. band from. The 80s. Oh, cool. okay. <laughs> clearly, I'm I'm in the know in the no, music industry. Just, Sorry, Joe, if I offended you. No, it's this great documentary about Paul McCartney and when the, the Beatles were going through their legal troubles and all of his finances were put on hold. He had already met Linda McCartney, and so it's this beautiful like love story about their relationship and how he basically found himself with zero money and they were living on a farm and she had a child and previous child and then all of a sudden they started having children together. And then he just started writing songs with her and was like, let's just make our own band. And that became Wings. And they even traveled on like a double decker tour bus with a playpen built into the top because they would just bring all the kids all the time. And Joe and I are watching this. And it's just interesting because I think some people can flourish in that kind of like we're all here as a family and that like controlled chaos and find inspiration in it. And I think for others, it's more compartmentalized. And and I had to realize mm-hmm. like, OK, I think I'm just more of a compartmentalized person. Like, I'm, you know, I think there are people who can just have little kids crawling all over them and then write a tune or be able to be on a business call. I cannot do those things. I have to go hide in my car in order for my brain to function and to really be able to participate in any sort of creative endeavor or important creative conversation. I can't even eat lunch without Poppy crawling all <laughs> over me and w- taking the plate and taking half of the lunch. And and it is. It's so fun. But yes, I'm definitely someone that has to compartmentalize because if I can't even eat lunch, I can't imagine writing something or <laughs> studying lines or working on the podcast. Well, luckily, we've got Sarah Stein Greenberg here to help us today. She is the executive director of the Stanford D School. Uh, she leads a community of designers, faculty and other innovative thinkers who help people unlock their creative creative abilities, and apply them to the world. Sarah speaks regularly at universities and global conferences on design, business, and education. She holds an MBA from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and a BA in History from Oberlin College. Sarah's new book, Creative Acts for Curious People, How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways, is out. Um, We are so excited to sit down with Sarah today and unlock our creative possibilities. And we are here with Sarah Stein Greenberg. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. You are so wildly creative and successful at what you do. Uh, But before we explore and get into all of that, I'd like to start and go back to little Sarah. Little Sarah, who was obsessed with Peter Pan as a kid and loved Mr. Rogers. Can you talk to us about what they meant to you, what they represented and how they played such a pivotal role in inspiring and guiding you to where you are today? 
Yeah, that's a lovely place to start because um, who doesn't want to just explore their childhood and talk about it all the time? Um, so I uh, I really did have this fascination with Peter Pan when I was growing up. I was a reader and I actually, there were certain books that I just reread obsessively and Peter Pan was one of them. And I think for me, there was this um, incredible uh, relationship that I developed with this idea about imagination, right? Like it was never clear to me whether Neverland was a real or a pretend place. And it kind of like, I loved that sort of that interplay, right? It's like, it's kind of real if you believe it's real. That's, that's one of the not subtle themes of that book. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, it just really sparked this idea about the power of imagination. Um, and I, I also, uh, as I, as I like to talk about, um, you know, I really loved, uh, Mr. Rogers as well, who was a teacher from a different perspective, I think really about kindness and also a little bit of about imagination, about the power of play and how that can open up new worlds um, for all of us. So those were two of my kind of early influences. Did you grow up in a creative household where did you have parents or siblings that were incredibly creative? Uh, Did you find yourself, you know, making projects or kind of using that side of your brain more often? Yes, I have some really um, adorable photos of myself at like a series of different birthday parties where my parents like devised elaborate, like one year it was an elaborate scavenger hunt. And another year it was like, we'd made like, I don't know, full body decorations and costumes. And like, that was the birthday party activity. Um, no <laughs> clowns, no sort of like bouncy houses. It was like all hands-on doing. And um, I would say uh, both of my parents had creative pursuits um, in various ways. My dad is a photographer and he always had a dark room in our basement. And, um, that was his side business the whole time I was growing up. And it was really a place where, you know, I could see him disappear for hours with, you know, rolls of film and then come out with stacks of photographs. And there was this, you know, sort of just mystery about that, that was really intriguing. Um, and then when I got a little older, I was allowed to kind of watch and you had to be really quiet and, you know, it was dark when the film was being developed. So I got it. I got a front row seat to that process. Um, And he also was somebody who was very fearless in terms of believing like if it was a, if it was broken, he could fix it. Right. And so I had this amazing role model of, you know, things that are broken around you or that could be improved you can have a role in making those things better. And whether that's the leaky faucet or, you know, a challenge that you're seeing in your community or or at your school. And I think that that was very foundational for me as well. What a wonderful way to grow up. So playful and fun. And I think a lot of times when we do quote unquote grow up, it we lose all that. We lose a lot of that in our everyday life, but not you and not people at the Stanford D school, because you guys, all the exercises and everything you do, you're solving these huge problems, but in a really fun and playful way with all of these interesting um, examples. I mean, I, I guess for me, the question is, how do you solve the world's greatest problems uh, that seem very conventional with these sort of unconventional ways? Well, let me just give you a concrete example, because that might sure. that, that often kind of sparks um, sparks things for some people. And I will say there is. Um, I think some surprises to be uncovered uh, in in our methods, just in exactly what you spoke to, right? It's like, 
we have our students who are coming from all different parts of the university, whether they're in medical school or they're going to be an engineer or, um, you know, an educator. And they're they're coming together and they're working on on problems that are quite serious at times. So we have teams, you know, who will be working on how do you design financial services for people who have just been through a devastating um, natural disaster like a wildfire or uh, teams of students working with um, folks who specialize in pediatric care for infants that are having feeding challenges right after they're born. So these are these are topics that are quite serious and, and heavy in many ways. Um, and yet we do retain an approach that at times is very joyful and playful. And that is part of how you can like access your, your real creative abilities. So one, one example that I'll give you is we had, um, an incredible woman named Jill Violet, who, um, for a long time, she's been a education entrepreneur. So she founded this amazing organization called Playworks actually. Um, and Playworks provides, uh, expert coaches for schools during recess. And that has a whole host of benefits, but what she noticed over time is that principals at these schools kept asking her if, if they could borrow her coaches to be substitute teachers. And she realized there is a huge challenge around substitute teaching in our country. It's like this completely overlooked facet of education. And yet almost 10% of students' times in many places, time in, in, in many schools are spent with a sub. So that's like a, that's mm. a really significant opportunity there. If you can think about how could we design that whole system to be more rewarding for the substitutes themselves, to have higher impact with the, with the students. And what Jill did is she used many of our, our methods that we teach to all of our students. She interviewed a lot of the stakeholders directly. She went in with an open mind. She kind of had a hunch that the problem was, you know, there aren't enough substitutes. There aren't enough people who are qualified who are signing up to be subs. But actually, mm-hmm. she she had an, uh, enough of an open mind that as she went through the process, she realized that is not actually the problem. The problem is the way we think about the role of substitute teaching, that it is kind of, you, you can somehow walk in and be a substitute for the person who is meant to be that full-time educator. And what she realized is there are already qualified subs, but schools have no systems around welcoming folks, telling them where to park, making sure they know which subs show up on time and who doesn't, retaining the best subs. And so she completely pivoted to start working on a whole series of offerings that are really for school administrators. So a very interesting example of how if you walk in and you keep an open mind and you do the kind Mm -hmm. of like in-person data gathering that we teach our students to do, you actually can come up with a far more powerful understanding of what is the opportunity here and then the direction that you might design in. And I'm assuming one of the greater challenges is just basically teaching how to have an open mind. I mean, it's so easy for us to get caught up in this is how things are. I don't have time to try something new. (laughs) I have to make this work. And um, it's an easy way to feel stuck in a rut and just have the tires spinning over and over and over. And so it it is kind of breaking up the monotony of uh, being finding yourself in a in a situation that is stuck. How do you then take a beat and open open up your mind if you own your own business, if you don't have the financial means to be flexible? You know, what are some kind of especially coming off of we're coming off of we're still in COVID (laughs) Um, being in (laughs) a pandemic. And, you know, so many people have had to pivot and change their business models and are just hanging on by a thread. Um, How 
where do they start to begin to have an open mind to see if not this, then what? Well, I think um, one thing that's really helpful to think about is, you know, where in your life or your business do you have the space to try something new or to be a little bit more innovative? And for a lot of folks, if what you have to do is to figure out what do I need to do tomorrow to make ends meet? then being in a more operational or kind of executional mode, that is exactly the right thing to do. If you're at a moment where you're thinking about, you know, how do I create some space to be thinking about how is my business going to be changing for next month or for next year? And you have a little bit more time. That is when often it is really useful to be able to create a little bit more spaciousness in your process, in your own creative process to actually figure out what might be a, a bigger and better opportunity to be working on. So I just, I want to recognize that that tension that you spoke to in terms of like, if, if you are just struggling to make ends meet, if you are really pressed for time, like don't, don't sort of take the long way around, but wait for a moment when you have a little bit more of that, of that space opening up. Then that idea that uh, about how do you keep that open mind is so important. And often what happens is we have the kind of the first idea in reaction to a problem or opportunity, and we seize on that idea. And the reason we seize on it is because humans have an aversion to the ambiguity that comes from keeping a problem unresolved. So we try to solve that problem as quickly as we can. But that first idea that we have unlikely to be the most innovative idea or the most powerful idea, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you can train yourself to stay in that ambiguity and uncertainty a little bit longer and think about multiple directions and do some of that kind of primary research, that getting to know all the different stakeholders, allowing yourself to be influenced by multiple perspectives, that's often where the most powerful um, ideas, like new ideas come from. So again, if you're, if you're in a space where you've chosen a topic where actually you really want to leapfrog, you want to you get beyond your current operations, that's where some of these practices can be extremely powerful. Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good. Because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix. My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGE right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. back. You also talk about how to stop self-censoring our most interesting ideas, which I think correlates to this. And right as I read that, it leapt off the page to me. And I thought, oh my gosh, I would love to be able to do that because sometimes we are our own worst critics. So it's hard to know what our most interesting ideas are. Are. So how how would one do that? Please help me with this. Well, it is so natural to self-censor. I mean, all of us are, you know, constantly bombarded by this idea. First of all, the I just the myth in our culture that like, 
you, everybody, you know, when, when you come up with something new, you're like on a mountaintop and the lightning strikes you right. and you're creative <laughs> genius all of a sudden where one minute you weren't and now you are. That's just fun, fundamentally not how creativity works, right? So one, one thing to recognize is like you will stay, you are, you're putting yourself in the way of having better ideas if you have a lot of ideas. So getting used to producing many more ideas than you think that you need and even setting yourself some goals. Okay, I have this challenge that I'm trying to solve. Can I come up with not just one idea, not just two ideas, but a hundred ideas or 200 ideas? Mm. The, 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 the increase of the number that you need is actually far more than most people realize. Then oh, wow. another incredibly important premise is that you have to separate the process of generating those many ideas from the process of selecting or judging. And the reason is like our internal ability to critique is so powerful and strong. Like it's the, it's the thing that allows you to walk around every day and be like, oh, is that a lion that's coming at me? Like, okay, I better make a quick decision and, and run away, right? It's like biologically hardwired for us to quickly judge a situation and react to it. But if you're trying to separate that process of generating from the process of selecting, you have to set that boundary for yourself. And that allows you to become better at the generation of ideas, come up with more varied ideas, and then mindfully move into a process where you're selecting. And when you think about the criteria for selecting which of those ideas you might want to move forward, you want to think about, I may not know whether something can work yet, but that's not necessarily a reason to judge this idea. Because someone out there might have the technology or the know-how to build this thing or to, to make this idea real. I don't yet know how people might react to it. So I don't want to censor based on that idea. So using bringing in some subjective criteria like which idea is the most exciting? Which one really lights you up? Which one would you, if it were possible, if it were feasible, would you want to spend time on? Like those are some of the things that you could use, which, which idea would be the most breakthrough if, again, there was technology to make it work. Those are some of the kind of little tricks that we can play on ourselves to jump over that hurdle of internal disbelief about whether or not something is possible until we've had a moment to actually test it, right? You yourself, as the innovator, you can't possibly know everything that is possible or that people in the world might like or might resonate with. So suspending that judgment until you can get some real feedback and, and test those ideas, that's part of how you can really leap over that internal sensor. Do you consider creativity a muscle? Yes. It, yes. Especially in the sense that it is um, something that you can like strengthen and deepen over time and that you have to tend to, like it can kind of atrophy if right. you're, if you're out of practice. And I think that that's one of those things that many of us in these, in this new phase of the pandemic that we're in are feeling, which is like, man, I just, I feel a little numb or a little dull. I feel like where, where did all my good ideas go? Or where did my daydreams go even? And I think that the, the reality is like, Many of us have been living in this kind of cocoon in which we're just exposed to much less newness and strangeness right. and variety. And I think that that is like a good, I, and you can feel it. You can feel that muscle atrophying under those conditions. So one thing I've been, you know, thinking a lot about is how do we create some of those situations for ourselves, even though the world is not yet fully reopened, things are certainly not back to normal, whatever that means, but actually intentionally cultivating a little bit more of that um, newness or strangeness in your life. So you can start to make those new connections and get those neurons firing again. So can we ask 
how what ideas you've had and have you tested them out? Have any worked? Have any not worked? Well, one idea um, that I'll share is it's one of my absolute favorites um, in in my book. It comes from our uh, director of teaching and learning at the D School. Her name is Carissa Carter, and this is an assignment uh, that we teach sometimes called the Derive. Um, and the Derive actually came out of like a French art movement in the '60s. It has like a long, very interesting history. But the basic idea behind a derive is that you take a walk and you can do this anywhere. I had somebody tell me recently she did this during the the break at her children's soccer game. She just took 10 minutes mm-hmm. and did a derive. But you, if you have an hour, even better. You take a walk around your neighborhood. But instead of taking a walk where you know what the destination or the route is ahead of time, you allow yourself to be guided by one particular quality that you choose. So maybe you choose the color yellow. Or maybe you decide you're going to follow strong smells and you, you smell one thing, maybe your neighbor's baking bread and you drift over towards that direction. And you kind of think about like what that evoked for you. And then you find another strong smell. Maybe somebody just mowed the grass or raked the leaves and you follow that and letting yourself be guided by something sensory is a completely different way to notice and to engage the world. And what I hear routinely from people who do a derive is that they see things or notice things about their environment that they have been walking by and not noticing for years. One person told me he noticed um, a, a, a fence, a, a brick wall on his property where he has lived for 32 years. He's huh. never seen it before. And uh, huh. in doing this derive, he noticed that this thing was there. And for him, it was like this real kind of like mind-blowing realization of like, well, what else am I not noticing? (laughs) Right. What else have I become so numb to that's in my daily environment? And what could I be noticing if I was more aware, if I kind of practice this more regularly? So I think there are many um, exercises that we use in design that can be useful, even if you're not engaged in a big design project, but just to start to retrain your attention in a particular way that allows you to see things that are that are there, but that you're just not seeing yet. Especially now in these in these digital times, I feel like so many jobs revolve around, you know, whether it's marketing or design or it is everything feels more creative these days. Um, Even if you have a very like non-creative job, most of the time you've got to market it yourself if you own your own business and that's creative. Um, So I'm sure you hear people go, okay, taking a walk around my neighborhood and like noticing the smell, how is that going to help me um, expand my business to get other people to notice it? Like that's not a concrete thing that I can do. I don't see how point A takes me to point Z. Yeah. I mean, I hear that from time to time. And, And the thing to remind yourself is that if you aren't opening the space in your own mind to have more creative thoughts, whatever it is that you're working on, you're just going to have that, you're going to run into that same wall over and over. So some of the practices that we use at the D school are very much around, um, creating that sort of personal space, cultivating that muscle, deepening your skills and your abilities in any kind of creative work. And some of them are really directly about, okay, I've got an idea. How do I build it into a, a rough prototype or a model where I could test it with somebody else and get good feedback, right? Or if I'm on a team at work, how do I bring a more collaborative, creative stance to that team so that we can we can develop some trust? So I would say there's, there's um, a whole range of practices from design that can help you, whether you're just trying to like 
unblock yourself from getting, getting, making progress on a particular uh, project or effort that you're working on, or whether you're in the midst of a particular design project or creative project, and you need like a, a technique to take you to the next step. The idea of design thinking feels so abstract because I feel like the word design means so much, so many different things to different people. And how does every job change their way of thinking to be part of design thinking? I mean, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my brain around um, what it is exactly. Is there a way you can break it down so we can understand it just a little bit more? I know you've been talking about it. Absolutely. So um, here's how I like to think about it. One is... Like design, as you just said, it means so many different things to different people. For me, it just means a way of solving problems creatively with intention. And I think about like three main aspects in design. One is um, we don't assume we know what the problem is when we go in. So that's that mindset that I was describing that Jill had. She had a hunch, but she was willing to discard it as soon as she figured out, oh, there's a more interesting problem here. And that is because we engage first in what we call problem finding, and then we move into problem solving. And as I said before, like most people just want to get right into the problem solving. And that's mostly what we're trained for and what we're good at. Problem finding is harder. And you ha- that's where you have to spend the time. You have to practice noticing. You have to practice this kind of um, in-person uh, or get, get getting to know people and, and hearing their perspectives in a different way. Um, so that second piece then is that human-centeredness right? It's the idea that when you're creating something new, when you're designing, and again, that could be, you know, you're, you could be designing an object, you could be working on a marketing brochure, or you could be designing the experience at the restaurant that you're opening, or at the doctor's mm-hmm. office where you run the waiting room. Um, that, that, that is, um, it's, it's made up of this whole series of human experiences. And you can change those experiences by designing for them intentionally, but only if you understand what people need and what they care about. And so that's that, that second piece is that human centeredness. And then the third piece is you don't know everything that's going to work in the world. How can you get more information about what might be working about your idea by actively testing it? So when, when you have all of those many ideas and then you select a few to move forward you think about, okay, how do I create a really rough version of this product or experience so that I can get good feedback? And it, one, one example I was thinking about recently, um, in the very early days, I think of the Palm Pilot. Um, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that the designers of that product did is they, it was like at a time when nobody knew if people would carry around a device in their pockets all the time. So they just asked the question, Before we assume, before we build all the technology, before we build out the whole thing and try to bring it to market, how heavy an object will people want to carry around in their pocket? Uh So they just had little bags of sand, eight ounces, 12 ounces, 14 ounces, and they had people carry around those bags in their pocket for a day or a week and then give them feedback about what that experience was like. And that gave them insight. So they quickly tested this concept well before they spent lots of money on the screen and the technology and the pen and all of that. So the same principle holds true. Like if you're, let's say you, you work in a doctor's office and you're trying to improve the experience of being in the waiting for, room for patients, you might say, I'm going to try a quick prototype today where I rearrange all the chairs and I'm going to see what that experience is like. Now you haven't bought new furniture, you haven't committed to a whole redesign, but you've thought, oh, what if people, you know, are organized in this fashion? What kind of experience does that create? 
then you might interview people before and after. So again, we use a lot of practices to rapidly test our ideas before we commit to them. And that often winds up both de-risking, making it much less risky once you launch your new product or service or change your business, and it can dramatically improve the experience for the, the user because you're getting their input along the way. When did you realize that this was a passion for you, uh, helping people and companies unlock their creative abilities? So I was very um, lucky just in terms of lifetiming that when I was a grad student at Stanford, the D school was getting started. And I had felt like I wanted personally to be equipped with a set of tools around this, this way of working, like working in a very creative way, but I, I didn't yet have the vocabulary for it. And when I first started studying at the D school, I was, I was like, oh, wow, this is like a whole community of people who have this incredible rigor about how they think about how do you move from a big, messy, scary problem to a creative solution. And they're doing it in a way that feels like very applicable to the real world. So at the D school, we have this premise that instead of like teaching you in a kind of um, sanitized classroom way where we give you a project, but like really it doesn't matter that much. We almost always have a real project partner that the students are actually partnered with. So the stakes are high from the beginning. And that's because like, if we're going to equip people to go out and actually be creative practitioners, we have to create an, an environment that's just as messy and dynamic as the conditions under which they might ultimately be having impact. So that, that experience for me personally was like, oh, this is like, this feels real. And very quickly, we were starting to get a lot of interest from different companies and school districts and um, all kinds of organizations. And they were starting to put some of this into practice as well. And so I had this moment about 15 years ago where I realized like, oh, there are a lot of people who are hungry for more creative practices. There are a lot of companies um, who could really benefit from, from adopting some of these approaches. Um, and that was, for me, that was the real turning point. Some of the things that you're mentioning what keeps popping in my head is like Silicon Valley, these like big corporations, corporate offices where there's like a ping pong room and like a ball pit room <laughs> and like, you know, Thursday, dart playing Thursday. I don't know. Obviously, I've never been in an office building, but this is what I picture in my mind, um, it, you know, in some of these kind of work creative play spaces. Um, but this is all relatively new. I, I mean, do you find that these spaces that are utilized and have become really trendy and popular in a lot of corporate office buildings, um, do they work? And how recent have these kind of office trends, when did this all begin? Well, you know, I think, I, I don't know if they work on a, on a broad scale. I will tell you they don't work if all you've done is like put the fancy furniture in and call it an innovation <laughs> space, but you haven't changed right. anything about the culture of the company. And there's still kind of a really, um, you know, deadline driven orientation and a really rigid hierarchy. Like the, the cultural underpinnings of how you're asking people to work in a creative way, if you don't actually attend to those things, it's actually very risky for people to be like, I've got a crazy new idea if there's no reward system right. for that, and maybe there's an implicit penalty system for kind of stepping out of the out of the norm or challenging what your boss thinks of as the the next big idea, so so companies that invest a lot in the physical space but don't actually work on bringing these skills and practices in and taking them seriously, that I, I don't think is tremendously effective. But I'll also say that 
you do not need that level of financing or that sort of like um, flashiness or fanciness to get folks to practice these skills. So um, I remember in the very early days, I heard from one team um, at a company that we were working with and they were like, well, we couldn't get an official space because like at the senior level, people didn't quite believe that this was going to be impactful. So we just started having a design workshop in a hallway and we put up all of our, you know, um, you know, big uh, post-it things. And then we were just, we were having a brainstorm out there. And every single person who walked down that hallway wanted to know what we were doing. And we would invite them into the brainstorm. And then we would invite them to give feedback on the, on the ideas and the prototypes. And so they, they like started a little movement within that company, but without having to have permission, without having to spend a lot of money, but just by behaviorally stepping their way, imagining their way into this future in which their company did embrace more of these, these techniques. So I, I love that. We, we often call that a bias toward action. Like they just tried a little experiment to see what could, what, what change, what shift could they make in their company in this very inexpensive and and fast way. Now, I think this leads us into the question of, you know, the idea that you guys have carved out this amazing space where you can um, control this creativity. And nowadays we all find ourselves working from home, not everyone, but a lot of us. So how do we then create that creative space from home? Because, and I know that this is a question that may not have a concrete answer. We're still learning, but any insight you can share, because I think we're all struggling within that. Uh, there's a lack of creativity and um, it just feels like we're all starving for it, but unsure how to really create a space and have others interact with others that doesn't involve a screen that feels really genuine. Yeah. I mean, I, I was thinking about this, uh, Candace earlier when you mentioned that sort of like everything is in the digital realm. I mean, it just, it feels like that just flattens out human experience right. so much. Right. So uh, one thing that we noticed it, with our students is that, um, in this, in this time when we've all been online and we've been teaching remotely, like getting people to go to their recycling bin and grab all the cardboard and the bottles and the what you know whatever else is hanging out in there and actually have to build something physical even if it's just as a warm up or it's just as a starter activity that the experience of like getting off the screen and into the real world of making things is like i i i i can't even tell you why it's so powerful but it has the ability to like re-inspire you in a way that little else can so i would say that that is one thing is like can you create a situation where instead of, you know, making your next presentation or your PowerPoint on the screen, like draw out a storyboard physically first, or instead of trying to mock up that website that you're making or that marketing flyer, can you just like build a little, you know, like a little diorama in, in cardboard to help you think about and just work out the ideas that are on your mind. There's something about physically connecting with materials that is very nourishing and replenishing to your sort of like creative energy, at, at least for me and for many of the students that, um, that we've worked with. So I, I think that that like incorporating the physical world back into your primarily digital home office environment is very, very useful. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. We're back. Yeah, it's funny. My husband, uh, we moved into a new house not too long ago. He's a songwriter. He's a musician. And the moving process obviously means chaos. <laughs> and it's we're also at home right. still. And we have little kids everywhere. And uh, and so we've just been feeling the weight of that as two creatives kind of end the monotony of like the things that need to be done in life and that are still important, uh, but also trying to find our creativity through that. And so at the end of last week, he was just like, I'm going to the gardening store. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I've got to plant these plants around our elm tree. We have an elm tree and I'm going to make it pretty with plants around it. And I was like, can you, okay, just go for, <laughs> like, all right. And just, but having his hands, he's in the dirt and the physical labor of just creating, you know, and, and for he was at the, by the end of it, it looks great, but like, <laughs> For the amount of time he was spending, like it was a long time, guys. Let's just say that he was up there for a very <laughs> long time, two days worth of planting these plants. But he was like, I just needed to have a beginning and a middle and an end. And I needed to see something through and know that I've planted these roots and I'm going to watch them grow. And I, I've just I needed that feeling. And it just hit me and I resonated mm -hmm. with that so much. And I feel like that's what you're speaking to is in these like time in this time of like zooms and screens and masks and distance, like really physically just putting your hands in a version of dirt or even true dirt, just seeing something in person and feeling the finality of creating something is uh, good for the soul and for the brain. I feel like you're on to sort of maybe the secret behind the sourdough bread craze. Yeah. Like, it's right. like the beginning, <laughs> the middle and the end, which is hopefully delicious is, I mean, right. that it is like, you really have that experience of making something with your hands. It's something that's alive that you get to watch grow and change. And then there's this beautiful output and it's kind of contained as a, as a project. And I think that is exactly the kind of thing that we all need to kind of like reconnect with our, our creative selves at times. So having said that, then your book, Creative Acts for Curious People has so many unique exercises within it. So many that 
it's almost hard when you sit down with the book initially to understand which exercise is right for you. So given this context that we're all talking about, what exercises within that book would you recommend for someone who just sits down with it for the first time and is trying to figure out where to go um, and hopefully find something tangible and with a beginning, middle and end that will help propel them forward? Well, I thought a lot about that challenge because I I wrote this book to try to help share these activities, these assignments that we teach in our classes at Stanford. But I fully recognize that that's not the context in which most people will encounter this work, right? So, and the other thing that I thought about is, you know, my approach to creative work and where I'm at in my own personal journey, every single person is different. So you might Mm -hmm. be somebody who is really looking at, okay, I want to, I feel my senses are totally dull after this, you know, long two years. I want to, I want to really reawaken how I notice the world around me. And so there is a whole section that is, that is right for that. There's a section that is about creative collaboration. How do you build trust? How do you create some more willingness to explore vulnerability on a team of people who are working together? And there are a whole set of exercises that are um, for folks who are kind of in that space. And then there is a set of activities that it's like, if you are somebody who says, I I just, I want to tackle a design project. Like I want to go end to end and figure out, can I make something that feels human centered and new and, you know, practice these different skills along the way. There is a, there is a chapter towards the end where I share some of the kind of beginning assignments and actually some of the more advanced assignments that we'll give um, to our students. So for one example, you know, we have a, we have a one in one of our classes every year, they'll do a project that is particularly for a group that provides service on campus. So one year they worked with the groundskeepers. Um, another year they worked with the folks who keep this, the, um, the outdoor art clean, like little there's, you know, that is a, that is an important role to like, make sure that you're maintaining that, that public art. Um, and all of those people have different kinds of needs, um, whether it's like the tools that they carry or the way that they get around campus or whatever it is. So our students, you know, each year have an opportunity to connect with a group that actually provides this kind of important but invisible service and do a design project around, around exploring what they could create that would improve those workers' experiences. That is a great project as a starter project for anybody who wants to kind of like test their ability to have that impact and stretch and explore their their creative abilities along the way. I find that speaking with a lot of creatives that have made their own way, built their own business, that one of the most common words that come up is failure and and embracing that word. And so I know this is like slightly off off topic, but I would love to know how you find uh, failure plays a part in a creative journey or in um, just being a creative person in general. Well, you know, the first thing that comes up for me when I, when this topic gets raised is like, I think we we do ourselves a disservice when we just say like, failure is great and it's just a part <laughs> of creative work, right? Doesn't don't, you have to love it? It's like, well, nobody nobody loves it, right? Like, it doesn't actually. Right. It really doesn't feel good when you put some work out in the world and like either nobody notices or people actively don't like it. So I I think it's it's helpful to recognize that you know, if you're putting work into the world, there will be at times a gap between what you think it's doing and saying and expressing and what other people experience from it. And the more you can learn about that gap early on in your process, the more successful that work is likely to be over time. So thinking about what, you know, when you build those, those quick and early prototypes to start to explore your ideas, and then you test them, 
when you're getting feedback before you're too invested in that end result, all that feedback is just helping you close that gap between your idea and the way in which it's actually landing for others. And so the, the idea that we like to talk about is like fail early, right? Yeah. And, and before you actually care too much about this thing that you're making, when you wait and wait and wait and you work in secret and you don't share, you know, your, your, whether it's your song or your design work or whatever it is with anyone until you're almost ready to launch it, which by the way, is something that many of us were trained to do. It's like, I don't hand in my paper until it's ready to, you know, get the best grade it mm. possibly can, right? Like we, we actually have some conditioning to only share finished, polished work with others and, and cause we're seeking validation, and what you have to flip is that paradigm from validation to input and feedback that's going to actually help the, the work and help you be more successful along the way. So I like to think about like, if you can, if you can embrace that experience of potentially failing as early in your process as possible, that helps you get on the right path. And that's what um, helps you avoid more significant um, failures down the road. We have a lot of younger listeners on this podcast who may be starting out their careers or trying to figure out what direction to go uh, in life. And I feel like you have had such a wonderful way of teaching for so many years. Do you have any advice for them about how or techniques, how to figure out what they're supposed to do in their life and how their talents can best be utilized within our world? Well, yeah, I have a, I have a couple of thoughts on this. One thought is there's a wonderful practice um, in the book called Direct Your Curiosity. And this was created by um, a guy named Eugene Korsunsky and a number of other instructors. And actually they were working with a group of young people who were having that like classic FOMO experience. They were like, <laughs> what do I do? Where do I spend my time? Where should I put my talents? <laughs> so they developed this exercise that's about really figuring out like, what is it that keeps you personally curious? What are you most interested in and drawn to? Um, and that practice, I think, can be can be very, very useful in helping you like locate your own curiosity and, and define it for yourself. There's another practice that I love, which is called map the design space. And that's about really figuring out like, oh, you know, I'm interested in making a change, like, for example, around climate issues or around community and, and police relationships. Well, those are huge issues. Like, where do you actually get started? Right. And map the design space allows you to think about like, what are all the different ways that, that those topics could manifest in terms of like how not just products or services that you might create, but the systems behind those, the experiences that people are having, the technology that's being used, even the data that's being used, and just kind of like untangle and disaggregate that complexity of these broad issues. So you can figure out like, Ooh, I think I've spotted a particular opportunity that I'm most interested in here. And the last thing I'll say is just that there's a, an amazing quote um, from an art educator um, named uh, Sister Karita Kent. And she just said, like, the only way to do it is to do it. <laughs> and it, you just, you have to try, right? The, the world around us is so complex and it's right now it's changing so quickly that you kind of can't plan your whole future vision for your career. You have to try something small and learn from it and see how it goes and then try the next thing. And again, I feel like that's a very different orientation than certainly than what I thought, how I thought my career would be or how my life would be, where I could sort of imagine like, oh, I can see the arc of it. No, no way. Not in today's world. So I think for, for younger people who are kind of looking to find their place, it's really like you're going to have many places and start by doing, 
right? Start by trying something and see what happens. And that is how you will orient and find your way over the course of your career and your lifetime. Well, and if you need some creative exercises, just check out Creative Acts for Curious People. Um, And that can definitely be a great jumping off point into navigating your next move. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Congratulations on your book. And where can our listeners follow you on social media so that they can get to know more about you and your future endeavors? Well, you can find me at LinkedIn, um, or you can find me um, expressing my own personal creative uh, self through photography of many different kinds um, on Instagram, which is at uh, Stein Greenberg. And um, if you're interested in this book or um, other D School books um, that are going to be coming out, uh, you can find those at dschoolbooks.com. Awesome. Thank you, Sarah, so much for sharing your wisdom with us. My pleasure. I'm definitely going to try the curious one that you just mentioned. I'm excited for it. There's so many exercises in there that I want to try. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear how they go. So now I got to sit down and go through this book and figure out which exercises I want to implement into my life. Because you know me, Candace. you know, I love a book and certain things to do. And I, I like a task. This book is perfect for me. I like a task that I can sit down and do. And I am very excited to report back. You got tips and tricks. You love your tips and tricks. I got tips and tricks. <laughs> What is that about me? That's hilarious. Okay, you're right. But this creative acts for curious people is just right up my alley. When Sarah sent us this book, I got so excited. I immediately sat down and started going through it. Um, The truth is there are so many options that I have to kind of figure out exactly what it is that I want from the book. But I'm so excited to sit down and do this. Um, I think she is just fantastic. You know, it's nice to hear that from someone who studies and teaches, you know, unlocking your creativity that we're all kind of in this same, you know, boat of trying to figure out what that looks like in the present day. And, you know, thank goodness we're past the part of the pandemic where everyone's like, you know, what would you do if you could paint the Sistine Chapel or I don't know, like learn 20 languages and do all the things now that you have all this time? And it's like, no, 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 we got a lot going on in the world. And so not everyone was able just to sit down and pick up a new hobby. And uh, I can't even imagine how many like hobby kits were ordered on Amazon that just never like I I had so many scarf making kits and, you know, so many (laughs) scarf making. I was was going to make a scarf, (laughs) goddammit, and I never did it, but I didn't want to. Wait, you mean like knitting? I wanted to knit a scarf, Kayla. (laughs) Um, And maybe I'll get to that eventually, but it just didn't serve me at the time. Um, But. It's nice to hear from Sarah that that even someone like her has had to take a step back and and say, what does opening up your creative mind look like in a year like 2021? What does that look like? And and luckily, yes, she has this incredible book um, with so many exercises and it's a real book. You can hold it in your hands. And uh, and that's another thing I took away from this conversation is just uh allowing the simple activity of of just a beginning, middle and end, whether it's making sourdough or maybe eventually knitting a scarf. But that that actually is going to do better for your creative process in the long term um, than you think it will. And I think that we forget that in this day and age of of constantly, you know, FOMO and, and comparing yourself to what other people are doing in this like social media, you know, digital atmosphere. Um, 
and it it just slows you down on on how you can progress in your own creative destiny. Right. And that's what we're doing. We're going to keep progressing. And um, but I, I think that the element of progression without the pressure to do so is kind of where most of us thrive. And so that's something that we can continue to work on is stop putting pressure on ourselves to have to do and be something. And you're right, Candace, social media doesn't help with that because we constantly see what other people are creating and feel the lack of that. So um, continue to create, but be kind to yourselves. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Directionally Challenged as much as we did. Uh, We have another really good one coming for you next week. So um, we'll see you then. Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Producer, Melissa DeMonts. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with ACAST.